Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent, and Chris Giles, Economics Editor. Down the line from Spain, we also have Tobias Buck, our Madrid Bureau Chief. This week, we'll take a look at Mark Carney's first week in charge of the Bank of England and what his top priorities will be as Governor. We'll discuss the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision's latest blow to the credibility of the main measure of bank safety, core tier one capital. And finally, we'll take a look at Spanish banks preparing for Basel III by trying to get deferred tax assets changed into tax credits. Chris, thanks very much for joining this morning. You have been plotting, really, the course of Mark Carney's arrival as Bank of England governor over the past few months. He's finally in in the role. What's the, the first week been like for him? What's your impression of how he's taken to the job? Well, I think, apart from the sort of theatrics of the first day when he came in at uh, before seven o'clock by tube which was all very staged the important thing was the interest rate decision on thursday in which the bank of england did what everyone expected which was to keep policy unchanged interest rates at half percent and quantitative easing stuck at 375 billion pounds but that wasn't the exciting bit the exciting bit was the bank of england for the first time really, when there's been nothing else going on, put out a statement with a no change in monetary policy. And the statement very clearly said that what's been happening in markets for interest rates, in long-term interest rate markets, the phrase was, was not warranted. So they're saying the rise in the borrowing costs of government and of companies and banks was something they didn't want to see, which was the first sign of forward guidance. This where central banks will go out, the Bank of England will follow the Fed in putting out its policy for the next year, two years ahead. And it's very clear that it doesn't want to go down the path of the Fed, where we're saying we're coming to the end of the extraordinary loose monetary policy. We're going to have that going for quite some time. And also interesting, there's some alignment with the ECB as well. Yes, it came just before the ECB's own press conference, their monthly meeting, where Mario Draghi came out and said that the ECB would be keeping rates low for, quotes an extended period, which was the language the Federal Reserve used a decade ago in 2003-2004. And again, that is to give guidance to the market and to households and to companies to say, look, you can go out and borrow because... You- your borrowing costs are not going to rise soon. We we will take action to ensure they don't. That's the idea. And that's the way that having no change in formal policy, but giving guidance can actually stimulate the economy some more. So he, he didn't uh, waste any time, Mr Carney, in doing what we expected, I suppose. Mark Carney's first week, clearly, uh, with the interest rate decision, was the sort of the pre-taste of what's going to come in August, which is the big decision where the Bank of England, certainly on economic grounds, has to decide the framework by which it will operate forward guidance. And this is going to be probably along the lines of the Federal Reserve. They will come up with some intermediate threshold, that's the jargon, which will be something like the unemployment rate or some other number which will determine how long they're going to keep 
monetary policy at extraordinarily loose levels. So they'll say, like the Fed, we're going to keep policy extremely loose or maybe even increase quantitative easing so long as, let's say, unemployment is above 6.5%. And we won't even think about tightening till it falls below that level. Now, that's difficult in the UK because the unemployment measure has not been behaving normally and lots of other measures of slack in the economy haven't been behaving normally. So it'll be very interesting to see what measure they particularly choose and what the thresholds are. And so that's what we're going to get in August, where we're going to see the framework by which the Bank of England is going to operate very, very loose policy. Obviously, a lot to focus on in terms of monetary policy, but that's only half of Mr. Carney's job these days. Financial policy is the other half. And I think the banking industry is watching very closely for any signs of the stance he's likely to take on that. Have you got any views on that? Because I know Brooke has. Well, I think he's not going to be soft on the banks. I mean, his history at the FSB is hardly... This is the international body that oversees banking Which he, which he chairs, yes. he's chaired for the past year or so. He's, he's hardly been soft on the banks, but I think the difference will be that he's willing to talk to the banks, and certainly in Canada he's been regularly in contact with the banks, which is rather different from what the Bank of England, its policy before the crisis was of just not having any relationship with the banks. And then when the crisis hit, Sir Mervyn King tended to have a very sour relationship, which was sort of described by mutual acrimony on both sides. Brooke, what do you think is going to I think he'll walk softly initially because, remember, he's never supervised banks. In Canada, Not directly, no. no in Canada, that's a different office with a very dynamic, powerful person who's been doing it. I think he's likely to let Andrew Bailey, who, with whom he seems to have quite a good relationship, do what needs to be done. As Chris said, he is not instinctively anti-bank which may in the end result in fewer pronouncements about how evil the banks are. And and I think that – I'm not sure actually in terms of actual policy there will be that much change because a lot of the stuff is set and, and is stuff that, that the UK firmly believes in. It probably does align, as you say, with Andrew Bailey. Andrew Bailey runs the, the Prudential Regulation Authority, of course, which is the arm of the Bank of England that supervises the banks. And he is, I think, credited with being – tough but fair. Banks seem to view him as being somewhat pragmatic, at least someone who engages with them actually very much more in line with Mr. Carney's way of doing things. Absolutely. I think Mr. Carney also views the world as, you know, he doesn't see it in a black and white kind of way, the way Sir Mervyn did. In his world, you know, banks are a vehicle for getting money to companies. And, you know, whether they are good or bad is not, doesn't strike me. It's not something he particularly cares about. Well, we're still midway through the resolution of the capital exercise that the PRA did on on some of the big banks, particularly on the leverage side uh, as relates to Barclays and the co-op. So it'll be interesting to see if, if at all he gets involved in that or indeed what the next steps will be in terms of bank regulation. We should move on to our second topic of the day, which is the publication last Friday of a report by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which was almost, a, I suppose, a, a pretty self-critical report in a sense because it was looking at the failures of the key measure really that the Basel Committee has devised over the years for measuring safety of banks, the strength of banks in terms of this core tier one capital ratio which relates essentially equity to assets when they're weighted for risk. Brooke, it was pretty self-critical in a sense. It was was at least criticising the way that banks use this measure, the dispersion that is evident in the market. 
Yes, it was. Essentially, it said that banks who were very aggressive and versus banks that were least aggressive, there was a 40% spread in the way they risk-weighted their assets. And that's critical because the risk weight then determines how much capital you have to hold. So it makes a nonsense of the whole concept. It doesn't completely make a nonsense of the whole concept. It, it suggests that there is, a, there is too much slack in the system and there's too much ability to play. On the other hand, if you don't risk weight your assets, that makes a nonsense because then it puts pressure on the banks to load up on really risky assets and get high returns because there's no penalty for that. You need to have risk weights in there somewhere. What's interesting is this week, and I think today, the Basel Committee is putting out a, a paper on how do we deal with these countervailing pressures? And is there a way to use risk weights without letting the banks game them? One of the most likely solutions would be to put some sort of floor that you can game as much as you want, but you can't drop your risk weight below some basic level. I think that there's been a fairly limited response so far from the bank analyst community, but some of the notes I've seen have been pretty critical. This has been a very long time coming, this assessment from the Basel Committee, and the results are, I guess, in line with what you might imagine or, or slightly less dramatic. But there's very little policy recommendation so far in, in Friday's report, at least. As you say, there's going to be some follow up on that. But I mean, is there really anything they can do to fix this problem? Well, there are the floors. And there's also the question of the leverage ratio, which is an unweighted capital ratio. It's basically the same kind of capital that on the top of the ratio, but the bottom is there's it's just nominal value. And you can use that to sort of say, you know, you cannot reduce the risk weights below some basic level. That's always been thought of as a, as a backstop measure, which maybe takes on more importance, arguably, if risk weightings are more in doubt, I suppose. Absolutely. I think the floor solution is probably the most likely one, to be honest. You already start to see it. Sweden, for example, has said that you know, residential mortgages cannot go below 15%. And we're seeing in some other markets such as Britain and mm. Switzerland and so on, other greater importance being attached to leverage ratios as well as as well as flaws. So we'll get there in the end. It's just going to be a messy, non-global solution, I suspect. Well, we'll see. The Basel Committee is trying to do this think piece. Maybe it'll go somewhere. Maybe it won't. There is no magic bullet with banks. You know, bankers fundamentally give them a ratio and they'll find a way to massage their business to fit it. So we're not going to get the perfect ratio. We probably need multiple oh, ratios to protect us. Talking of massaging, there's some game playing going on in Spain at the moment. Our third topic is looking at the Spanish bank's efforts to change deferred tax assets into tax credits. Tobias, you were monitoring these developments last week. Quite interesting. This is a this is a big issue for Spanish banks. Obviously, they've been through some torrid times lately, and they're sitting on a lot of historic losses, which generate these so-called deferred tax assets. They don't want to be sitting on these deferred taxes, that they're, they're trying to turn them into tax credits. What exactly is, is going on here? Yes, I mean, Spanish banks have about 50 billion euros in deferred tax assets sitting on their books right now. And that wouldn't really be a problem under, under the current capital regime. But once Basel III kicks in, these deferred tax assets won't count towards their capital base, i.e. Um, that means their, their balance sheets will look a lot worse than they do now. What they're trying to do, therefore, is they're trying to convince the Spanish government to reclassify at least some of these deferred tax assets and turn them into tax credits. And, I mean, this change, though kind of quite small and technical, would make a big difference under, under Basel III because then these reclassified tax credits would indeed count towards their capital. In simple terms, this is basically turning something that is contingent. In other words, to, to reclaim a deferred tax asset, you have to be making a profit as an institution into something that is not contingent because a tax credit has a, a genuine worth at any time. Is that right? Uh, 
That's right. I mean, the main difference in legal terms seems to be that if a bank falls into bankruptcy, the government still has to honor the tax credit, whereas if you simply have a deferred tax assets, as you said, that only really becomes relevant once the bank returns to profit. And then, of course, it can deduct these, these deferred tax assets from their, from their tax bill. But presumably, but the, a bank that's in trouble, which is what, what we're worried about here, is not going to be making a profit. So, uh, Well, I mean, you know, if you take the example of, of Bankia, for example, the, the nationalized Spanish bank, I mean, the, the bank that has become you know, the, the poster boy of the Spanish banking crisis, yeah. more than 80% of Bankia's tangible book value is actually in deferred tax assets. So it'll have to record many, many, many billions of euros in profits and many billions in euros in, in future taxes to actually use those deferred tax assets. So I think there are real question marks over how much these deferred tax assets are actually worth and will be worth in the future if the government does not go along with this plan. Well, I suppose that's the key question. Will they go along with this plan? Well, the government says that uh, it's under discussion. They seem to be quite sympathetic to the idea. And also, quite importantly, they can point to the example of Italy, which did exactly this same trick or, or move, if you, if you like, two years ago. And so they think that this actually puts Spanish banks in a weaker competitive position towards some of their peers in Europe, and I would suspect that they will eventually uh, wave this through. I think it's also important to add that the Spanish banks aren't pressing the government to reclassify all the 50 billion worth in deferred tax assets, but um, only those that relate to pension contributions and to generic provisions, which, according to some analysts, would be around half that sum. Tobias, thanks very much for uh, explaining that. Brooke, obviously interesting developments in Spain. As Tobias was saying, something similar happened in Italy, and it's far from restricted to those two countries as well, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a broad global theme, this. Absolutely. Any bank that's had a miserable couple of years has a lot of deferred tax assets. It's basically losses that you can then hold against your profits and not have to pay tax on them. Regulators are very keen to keep deferred tax assets out of the capital ratios because Obviously, a deferred tax asset is only valuable when a company is making money, and a troubled bank that needs capital to absorb losses is certainly not making any money. So they are essentially worthless from a regulatory point of view. So from regulators' point of view, then they would clearly support the idea of of a DTA, which is contingent on profitability, being turned into something that had value regardless of profitability. Well, from their point of view, it turns it from something that is not useful as, as capital to something that is useful. Quite. It is essentially a gift by the government. I mean, well, that's what I was going to say. Is this kind of state aid through the back door if, if the government in Spain agrees to go along with it? It sure sounds like it to me. I know I don't understand the European Union rules on state aid, but it certainly sounds that way because it means you get to it becomes valuable at a time when it's not valuable. I think uh, we're going to see a lot more examples over the months and years to come of of further support from states, maybe not direct bailouts, but moves like this that are essentially add up to the same thing. Thank you very much for your thoughts on that, Brooke. And thank you also to Chris and Tobias for their contributions. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.